Hello and welcome to another episode of the Coastline Covenant podcast. When I first started this podcast or first, you know, kind of pitched the idea, I kept saying I want to interview people that I think our Coastline community should know and hear from. And at the top of my list was John McDonald. He is a Covenant church planter at a church called Restoration Covenant out in Redlands, California. And John and I had an incredible conversation full of wisdom and nuggets of information. So I suggest you get a notepad. You get a pen and you put it on 0.75 speed so you can get everything that John says down and you can put it and apply it to your own life. John is so smart and so gracious with his time. We have a nice long conversation. So enjoy this podcast and we have a lot more fun stuff planned. So we'll see you next week and every week after that. Welcome, Coastline Covenant Podcast for another week. Something I've been so excited about in starting this podcast is having conversations with people that I think people should know. And I'm sitting across from someone in my apartment. I thought this was going to be on Zoom, but Mm -hmm. it just happened to be in town today, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I'm sitting here with John McDonald, who is um, connected to the Coastline community in a number of ways. But beyond anything, he's a pastor. He's planted a church. Smart guy, great Instagram follow. Um, so I, I'm really excited to have you, John. Thanks for taking some time out oh of your Monday and gosh. coming and talking to me. Yeah, of all the flourish of the Instagram follow, maybe the biggest uh, overpromise under deliver. But thank you for having me. It's great to be part of the Coastline fan club. Is that what it is called? It's, on, a, on it's those end? who are <laughs> cheering and praying for Coastline from some distance. Yes. Yeah, and so distance. You are in. I'm in Redlands, California. It's so about Cal- an hour away. Yep. And we've been there for 14 years now. Wow, 14 years. And so you started a church in Redlands. Yes. Okay. Let me, let's back up a million percent. Okay. <laughs> in the beginning, God, no, I'm kidding. Um, you are from where? Who's your family? How did you get involved with church planting? Okay. So I'll, uh, I'll tell the, uh, you know, I have three, five, 12 minute versions. So I'll, t- I'll tell like the three to five minute version. Sure. So I, uh, you know, grew up uh, basically in Colorado. My dad is Byron McDonald, a mm-hmm. name that probably sounds familiar to many of mm-hmm. your listeners here. Uh, so grew up in a, in a, in a Christian household with, as a pastor's kid, yeah. uh, family moved to Ukaipa. Uh, and then my senior year, right after my senior year, I went to Biola and my dad uh, took a call at Rolling Hills Covenant Church, uh, which is my initial connection to this mm-hmm. community. I'd never even heard of the South Bay until wow. my dad can- candidated there. And I remember candidating as a Biola freshman and standing on the stage and uh, feeling that welcome. And yeah. uh, it, was, it was a great experience. And so uh, while I was at Biola, I started, worked uh, in the, in the, as an impact leader. Hmm. Nope. DC leader. Oh, wow. Started with DC, where all impact leaders begin. Yeah. And uh, started with DC uh, under uh, Dave at the time was the pastor there and really mm. came to love ministry. It was my first first time I ever gave a, a message was under What was, was the passage? Rolling Hills. Do you remember anything? I have no idea. Really? I just remember thinking that was a catastrophe. <laughs> and then I went on this short-term trip to Russia, came back, and told you know, kind of told about the story and folded in scripture. And this was back in the days of overhead projectors. Oh, and yeah. I, I was like, I want to show you some slides, like the classic missionary slideshow. But it was actually c- crudely drawn drawings on overhead screens that I was showing my trip, but through hand-drawn you drew images. It. I drew it. Wow. On transparency. Congrats. And, and, That's uh, a huge It was. They, huge people thing. still talk about that moment. And it was the first moment where I felt 
engaging a crowd and feeling the influence of being able to stand up and talk about God's word. There's a really interesting thing to pull out there of like being creative mm -hmm. and speaking. Are you, would you say you're a creative person? Cause I, at Biola you majored in math. I majored in math. I intended to be a math teacher. Um, and you know, I would, I would say that I'm creative in the sense that my, my brain and thinking doesn't work on conventional lines all the time. And Got so it. I've, I think preaching is, it's like any art where you yeah. start by mimicking the masters as you discover your own voice. Who were some of those masters for you growing up? Oh gosh. So I, um, in the early days of, of growing up, uh, of course the legend himself, Byron McDonald. Uh, <laughs> and then later I was really, uh, drawn to, uh, you know, I remember, uh, this is fun because some of the some of the names you're going to hear are, are going to are somewhat prized in the Christian community. But uh, the first person to ever compel me was uh, Bart Campolo. Oh my goodness! Who now and is, yeah, that's uh, a, is a vowed atheist and yeah, has forsaken the tried to tried pariah. to hijack. <laughs> yes, exactly. But he 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 was a fantastic storyteller. Mm -hmm. And in one of the ways he he was, I remember him saying, "I don't have a big house and I have a lot of wealth, but I have stories," and that's mm. the. That's the greatest wealth is to have a bunch of really good stories. And yeah. I remember wanting to live a life that was worthy of stories. And that, in, in that talk led me to two years of Russia, like to, wow. to leave, to, to do a two year missionary adventure with university in, in Russia, Russia, Russia. What year? I was there 96 to 98. Okay. So they had just, it was, they're still kind of a new, they were still figuring uh, it out. It, I was kind of there after all the promises of capitalism were being broken. Oh, wow. And uh, strong nationalism was uprising in there by this guy named Vlad Putin. Oh, I remember yeah. hearing about him still during the Boris Yeltsin years, but <laughs> Putin was rising to power. He was known. And Did you go to Pizza Hut? I went to Pizza Hut in St. Petersburg once, yeah. Wow. That's like the bit. Uh, and McDonald's in Moscow. Yeah. And uh, maybe a Hard Rock Cafe in one of those places, too. A Hard Rock Cafe. And, uh, just Ramstein guitars on the wall. Just Ramstein. <laughs> and... Deep cut. <laughs> deep cut. So, Russia, you come home, you're compelled to ministry, and then... So, I come home, teach uh, teach a year of math at Miralest, okay. seventh and eighth grade, um, but all the while planning to save as much money as I can to go to seminary, to go to Fuller School World Missions, mm -hmm. and to become a missionary. Oh, and at the time, Rolling Hills was sending, had a, had a strong, they, they'd been challenged to focus on one country. And so, it's, you know, you have enough resources and such a passion for missions, you could impact one country. So why don't you focus? And they, they chose and were led to choose Kazakhstan. So I had some friends there. Mm. I spoke Russian. And so this is an opportunity for me to use some of those language skills. And, and while they were working with the Kazakhs to, to go and, and work with the indigenous Russian population. So I felt really called to, um, to the mission field. So I went to, after one year of teaching, went to um, Fuller School okay. World Mission, intending to be a church planter in Kazakhstan uh, while working with uh, Sean Hurley, my soon-to-be wife, Lindsay McConnell, yeah. under the legend himself, Bill McPhee. Wow. And so Those are some names. Those are some, uh, some names that may sound familiar to some of your listeners. Some of the fan club. <laughs> and, uh, and the fan club as well. So we, in that process, were really seeing that as high schoolers were graduating, they were not landing in churches. Right. That they were finding there's just, there's just no church that is addressing their needs, talking in language that they understand. And, and I was training to be a missionary, so I was looking through the lens of a, a missionary anthropologist hmm. and saying the church is not taking seriously their, their spiritual questions and needs. And, hmm. And so I 
began to pivot from sensing a call to the mission field in far away to the mission field that was developing in our own backyard. Wow. Um, so that led me to uh, Mary Lindsay uh, to move to Ukaipa to be the youth pastor at First Baptist Ukaipa, which is where I went to church when I was in youth group. Oh, wow. My dad's old church. Did that for a few years, came back, did an 18-month residency with Tim Mori at Life Covenant Church. Awesome. And then with the generous support of our denomination with, with Life and with Rolling Hills Covenant Church, we launched Restoration Covenant Church out in Redlands, California. What year was that? That was January of 2007. Okay. So you... Longer than I, than I like to imagine. And, and it was <clears throat> my uh, second born, Annie, was, was three months old when we began. So whenever I forget how long the church has existed, I just at, think about how old Annie is. That's, that's sweet. That's when the church began. That's a good picture of family, too. You watch yeah. your family and the church. Family, family grow and the church, uh, yeah. So now our church is in the uh, unruly teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your church can't drive quite yet. Can't drive yet, but uh, and isn't an adult yet, but uh, it kind of oscillates between child and adult uh, on a regular fashion. So you can look at Coastline mm-hmm. from your perspective and see a lot of probably the same things. I can see a lot of the same things, and I can see a lot of differences. Yeah, so what are some differences that you can see? Uh, the differences is uh, a, an immediate staff of four and two worship services. Those are, <laughs> those are big differences that uh, I never had the luxury of. I yeah. was uh, just a solo pastor. Just one guy. Just one guy. Wow. Um, so that was, you know, everything Everything fell on me. At what point did you feel like you weren't a church planter anymore? Um, so we adopted our bylaws and became moved from a church plant in the denomination's eyes to a covenant church. Okay. Uh, in about f- probably 2012. So that's five, five years. Five years. And then probably a year or two after that. Okay. So some of it was a combination of church plant becomes an identity. And so ah. you think of yourself as a church plant and there's a whole suite of things that come with being a church yes. plant that are advantageous in some ways. Yeah. Then when you go to a think of yourselves as a church, it, it just, it feels like being a grown up. It yeah. feels like, uh, uh, it's, it's just different. Yeah. And so you were solo, but you, did you have people on your team or were you out in Redlands, like knocking on doors, getting people excited? So we never knocked on any doors. We had some, some connections and friendships we built up from then. From like First Baptist. From First Baptist. So some of those key youth group kids and especially some leaders that were really good worship leaders. So the one thing I can't do is lead worship. Hmm. So I needed help in that area. So we had some people that did that. We had some connections, made some people, uh, you know, friends of friends kind of things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just kind of struggled for yeah. a few years yeah. um, before we kind of found our legs and our identity. The people who were with you in the beginning, though, how, how many would you say you had, like, as a core? I would say we went through the core group stage and had as many as 40 to 50 people in that stage. That's a great number. Then had 100 or so at our yeah. first previews. And then settled in probably 40 regular attending adults. For, okay. And then so were they kind of – I'm interested in, you know, that question of, like, you have an identity as a church plant, mm-hmm. and then you become, like, a church, you know, five, six years later. Were there people kind of, like – hey, let's get this thing moving. Like, let's be a real church. Or did you find that your people were like, okay with the stage you were at? You know, it's, that, that's a, I've never really thought about in those terms before, which, which is, uh, which makes it a good question. Oh, that's well, well played. Uh, <laughs> tip of the hat. Uh, listeners can't see me tipping my hat right now. Um, I think that, that there was a negative energy that formed the early years of restoration. Okay. And so one of the, one of the challenges that 
probably most church plants have to overcome is that everybody's there left another church. Hmm. And so there is bags that have to be unpacked yeah. of why they left that church. And if they are coming because they are consumers that want the next best cool thing, or they're angry and bitter at the, the last church that they left, um, or, you know, occasionally you have somebody that, that moved into town mm-hmm. and occasionally you have somebody that was de-churched and was willing to consider church again and kind of came back to you. So they, um, in most of those, probably in all of those different contexts, the different ways people find us, there's some level of trauma, yeah. either, either the trauma of moving from a new community to, from an old community to a new community, the trauma of deciding to leave a church for some people that had been a part of that church for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and those who just kind of thought, oh, this is the next cool thing. Let me, let me check it out. Um, and I didn't realize until later how much our identity was defined more by the things we aren't than the things we are. And so we doubled down on, we're not like this. We're not like that. Oh. So some of the, some of the, the knots is we are not a production. We are authentic. We are not a dogmatic church. We are a church that opens and invites questions. And but even in, in adding the positive side of it, I don't even I don't even know we had that developed side. We just knew what we weren't. Yeah. You know, it was oh, okay. You know, if you think about you know the metaphor of a lot of people talking about deconstruction. Yeah. Like, deconstruction is great if you got a floor plan yeah. and the new wall is going to yeah. go up. But uh, at some point, deconstructing, you're like, I don't have a roof and yeah. I don't know what I am anymore. And so we had a lot of that kind of negative deconstruction. We, you know, many of us have been hurt by church. Many of us have some form of religious trauma. One, you know, many of us have left another church and, and now found restoration. And we didn't realize that the ways in which our church had been marked by grief and trauma hmm. and how we needed healing uh, and to, to kind of process that in those terms. Um, and when we became to feel like a church, uh, you know, that seven years later or so, I would say it was after we we'd all experienced some healing Hmm. um, from past traumas and we're more aware of who we were than what we weren't. Hmm. And our weekly worship services began to shape around those values so that we were now able to offer something different. That, I mean, that is so, I think if you're listening and you go to coastline, you've probably heard a lot of things in there that resonate, you know, especially kind of with this idea of like trauma so how do you pastor people in that type of like church trauma where there's often not a smoking gun? Mm-hmm. There's often not a, this was the moment where I decided to leave the last church or mm-hmm. this was the thing that really pushed me over the edge. But it's just kind of like, like deconstruction, you know, it, it's, it's a season. You mm-hmm. don't just one night right. realize. So how did you pastor people through their seasons of maybe deconstruction or uh, their, their seasons of trauma? And how did you you know, try to answer their questions with a worship service? Because that feels counterintuitive to Mm -hmm. me. So, you know, if you were to ask any pastor, is a church a worship service or is it a group of community people? Mm -hmm. Every pastor would say it's community people. It's not a worship service. Yet we orient everything around the weekly worship service. And so there was a long time for me to realize we can't just keep doing, like, here's one thing I realized. So, we would do a weekly worship service. There would be 40 people in the room. Mm-hmm. And we would have done the exact same thing if there had been 1,000 people in the room. Hmm. There was no distinctive difference between us. Still, these people went on stage. Still, some guy went and talked about scripture. Then we did some more worship, and we were done. There's no change at all. Right. So I began to ask the question, 
what are the advantages we have as a small church that bigger churches don't have? Because mm-hmm. um, bigger churches have a lot of advantages. Yeah. Um, but so do small churches. What are those advantages? And so we began to think, we began to talk about how do we, what are the values of being a small church and how do we double down on those mm-hmm. so that they become distinctive? So we're not trying to grow into some behemoth church, yeah. but we're trying to say, no, there's an advantage to small mid-sized churches that people are looking for. Yeah. Um, and so what are those advantages? And, you know, one advantage is the pastor can know everybody's name. Mm-hmm. The pastor can know the name of every kid in that church. Um, the people can know one another. The, the people, the community can know the kids. I began reading Kara Powell and Chap Clark and the, some of the questions, Sticky Faith, what is it that actually makes children grow up in the faith? Hmm. And they said, it's five people. Yeah, It's not a curriculum. If you double down on a program, you're going to lose your kids. But if you double down on relational networks, those kids will grow up and nurtured in the faith, knowing the people and the adults of the church community. We're not compartmentalizing them over there and then saying, when you're grown up and fully gestated, then you can come join over here. And then when they, when they grow up and uh, into adulthood, they say, I don't want, I have no connection to that community. My mm-hmm. only connection was with this group and now I feel lost. Mm-hmm. So we said, we can know the names, we can watch and raise our kids together in the community so that when they graduate, there's not this major disruptive event of this crutch of a a program that kept them in the faith. They're celebrated as adults and commissioned to go to college. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's been really cool to see that now. Kids now, you know, 14 years, we have people that have grown up in the church now that are reaching and entering into adulthood, fully integrated and connected to the church in ways that are natural and intuitive. So if, if you think about why plant a church, well, for your kids, so your kids can grow up nurtured in the faith. And now we began to formulate our ministries around our children and mm. welcoming in. So when I was, um, you know, when I was at Coastline, I saw middle schoolers leave at one point during the service and then re-enter. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, the, they were there for, they were with the adults, they worshiped with the adults. And then when the pastor went up to the preach, they went and had an age-appropriate lesson connected with one another, and then came back and re-engaged with the, with the adult. And they, that's what we started doing. Mm-hmm. And we did it because we started at, we reverse engineered from what do we want? We want kids who are developed in the faith. How do we get the, at every stage in a child's development, they're, they're integrated more and more into the church's life oh, and community. That's interesting. Let's form a whole, let's form a whole church around that process so that we are constantly investing in our kids. And then, you know, singles that don't have kids they're invited into the, the, the lives of the kids of our church too. Like th- we become one family together where our kids grow, grow up, raised together. We're united in wanting to see them cared for and loved and, and pass on the torch of the faith to them. And then we begin to do everything around that. Um, the other thing we did was, um, you know, I, I don't like sermons where it ends with me being told how this applies to me. Hmm. I like... Um, I heard a, I heard a pastor one time, and I, maybe I'll think of him by his name by the uh, Spencer Burke. Uh, he, I think it was him. He said, <laughs> "Maybe I'll think of his name." That, that's, that's his name. name. <laughs> Spencer, I think it was Spencer Burke. He was saying that when it comes to preaching, I'm in seminary. Like I'm somewhat of an expert in the text and theology. Right, I've right. got training there. When it comes to application, I'm no more of an expert than anybody else. Mm. So my job is to unveil the the gem behind whatever the text is, put it on display, say, "Look at how beautiful and wonderful this is." What does this mean for us? 
let's reflect on that. Mm. And then it ends with, in our, in our church service, everything builds towards a time of reflection and leaving and trusting people to do the application themselves and the table. So that um, that's another distinctive of ours is um, I lead people to the table every Sunday. So the, you know, taking of, of communion of the Eucharist is, is the high point of every worship service. So sometimes a sermon is about God, his work, and Jesus. Um, and so it ends with the table being the reminder of God's love for us mm-hmm. and, and, and the, um, both the weight of the sin that would require such a sacrifice um, and the weight of the mercy that would mm-hmm. offer it. Other time, it's about community. Yeah. And so the table is the place where we come together, yeah. uh, where we may have voted differently. Right. We may have different theological distinctives here and there. But the table unifies us. We are all invited to the table together, and we are all we all come with empty pockets to the table. The, the, whatever socioeconomic, whatever racial divisions there are, we are all made one at the table, um, and that is a is a foundational block of our community is coming every week to the to the table, which is why you know COVID was so disruptive to us. How did you, you do know, it during COVID? So. We didn't do. Yeah. We started doing communion a little bit. Um, we so when when COVID hit, uh, I started recording sermons on Thursdays. I and offering that people can watch it or listen to it at their leisure. And then Sundays we would do Zoom, and and I didn't want to passively watch a service together on a Zoom screen that didn't make any sense to mm-hmm. me. So we would gather, connect, talk. We'd have a, a, a call to worship, some time of reflection and singing. Um, and then we would dismiss the kids to a Zoom program of their own. And then we would have more of like a, what would probably be best described as an inductive Bible study together where we'd use the text to, as a springboard launching pad into how we were doing. Um, so we maintain those, um, you know, I, I think that as a church that didn't emphasize the production, hmm. it was a pretty natural pivot to Zoom services, yeah. uh, as natural as it could be given the catechism of a worldwide global pandemic. Yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, it, it felt like in a lot of ways, our values were were not interrupted by the pandemic. Mm, that's that, that cool. We, we quickly found a way to, to maintain those connections because we weren't married to a, a, you know, a weekly worship event. We were married to these, the, the weekly worship. Here you go. Here's a pithy little retweetable thing for you, Hunter. Um, I'm ready. The, the weekly event served the community. The community did not come to serve the weekly event. And so we reoriented towards getting this weekly production to happen every week into the weekly production being something that serves the deeper value and needs of being connected to one another, centered around the table. So when mm. the pandemic hit, it was awfully nice to not be married to a weekly event because yeah. that was taken from us. Mm-hmm. And into now, since our higher value is these connections to one another in the pandemic, how do we, what does it look like? How does that change and pivot? And, and that's, that's what it looked like for us. And that just feels more sustainable too. Yeah, it was, you because you think about it, it's, you know, one of the, one of the tragic truths that preachers don't want to think about is there are hundreds of better preachers than you oh, yeah. in the world <laughs> and they, their stuff is available in real time to yeah. folks. Oh yeah. So, uh, you know. I don't aspire to be the best teacher in the world. Uh, I aspire to be a local preacher that, yeah. you know, pre- pastors people through his preaching. Um, so, Well, I mean, there's like 
I think, 150 things you said that I think we could do all this up. Yeah, let's do, let's do them all. Let's do them all. Uh, but I want to ask, you know, because most of the people listening to this are congregants at Coastline. Mm-hmm. And as a church planter, pastor, you probably have dealt a lot with, I mean, you certainly have, like, kind of an infant congregation. Yes. So, like, I want to try to ask this question in this way. Let's say that day one someone came uh-huh. and they've been going to restoration uh-huh. for the whole, you know, 14 years or whatever, and they're still there. What do you think, what, what's your ideal journey that they have been on? Mm-hmm. And how, as a pastor, have you helped facilitate that? And in what ways do you think that you could have done better? So, um, man, think 150, less 150, it would be the, the list of things I could have and should have done better. And that yeah. only scratched the surface. Uh, I know. I think one of the things I, I I look back and think it was I was a artist looking to for his voice, hmm. and so there are times I was, you know, I would have preached a sermon, and somebody come up to me and said, "I like Tim Keller too," and it would because that's all it was was a repurposed Tim Keller sermon and taking his uh, you know taking his uh, rough outline and inserting my own personal anecdotes and stories. Yeah. But I think that's what painters do when they're learning how to paint is yeah. they copy the masters for a while until they develop their own tape. And, and I think the church as an institution was in the same way. Hmm. Um, you know, I think the, our worship services, the, the perspective I have on, on scripture is very different than it was 12 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of that is because we needed permission to try and fail. Hmm. We needed people that were willing to stick with us through the experimental phase because they were part of the community and that the role of a weekly worship service had been de-emphasized over a higher value. I wish I could have articulated that better and doubled down on that sooner rather than just saying like, when you plant a church, you just, you just do what you knew. Like you just like, I've been in Rolling Hills for a long time. I was part of First Baptist Church. I was part of life, you know, just terrific churches, Mm -hmm. but that's not who I was called to be. That's not the church I was called to plant. And it took me a while to discover that, and there is no shortcut to those those spaces. Right. You just you just have to go through it, and there are people that want a church fully formed, and yeah. there are lots of those in Redlands, and they are happy in those churches, and I'm happy for them. We just needed some an experimental phase to start with our values, and then work backwards into how can we create a worship service and a weekly rhythms that reinforce those values rather than just taking what we've always been handed and assuming, well, obviously we're called to do that because that's what everybody does. Right. Um, that's such good advice to stick with it. Cause if you, and, and this is the same thing with the Christian life. Like I, I firmly believe like if God handed you who you were supposed to be right now, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want that. Mm-mm. You'd be like, I don't know that person. I don't want to be that more loving, kind, generous person. It takes the process. Right. And so if, right. if you're a congregant going to a church plant and the church plant is exactly the church you want it to be right now, right. Run. Yeah, I know yep. it would be it would be insane if yeah. that if that were the case. Yeah. It would be, you know, it's like marriage. Like right. the the person you were in the first day of your marriage is not the person you are in 18, 20, 40 years right. in. Like you you change and adapt into that, but but that's that's how it is. That's yeah. how I mean parenting. When you're a parent, you are a, my father-in-law once said, you know, I the time I was finally ready to be a parent, I was already a grandparent. And I think that that's one of those things where I think most pastors are going to look at like yeah. the time I can lead safely and preach responsibly, it's a few weeks before I'm supposed to retire. I mean, right. that's just the nature right. of life, I guess. Yeah. It's, so sticking with the process so as a congregant is number one. super important. Uh, number two, um, I think 
having people pivot from a cruise ship mentality to a fishing boat mentality. So hmm. in a cruise ship, you come on board and everything's catered to your need. Yeah. Your room's over here, sir. Um, I hope you find it to your liking. Dinner's at this time. Might and not so have any windows. Your room might be just be a coffee. It room, might just be in the on the bottom bunk yep. next to the steam room and <laughs> you sweat all night. But it's oriented around serving the people and mm -hmm. their needs. And then a fishing boat, it's thrown around a, a task and a mission and a project. And yeah. so if you are standing around a cruise ship, that's fine. Everybody's doing that. You yeah. know, kicking back, reading books. But if you're reading a book on a fishing boat, you're taking up space. Hmm. And so I think there there is a reality that uh, in a church plant, um, we we do it together. Yeah. I was at a friend's church in, in the IE, uh, and he was a big <laughs> mega church. He's a worship leader out there. And you know, every once in a while, it's nice just to go and not be in charge and just be, you know, be blessed by worship service. And, and I was looking, and, and it was three, it was six sections of about 200 people per section. And I thought to myself, what if each of those 200 person sections was a church? Yeah. What would be called out of those folks? What if they moved from passively watching a worship service into being engaged in creating a new church culture together? And how much more powerful would six churches of 200 be than mm -hmm. one church of 1,200? Mm -hmm. And how does a church of that size overcome the, the way of appealing to people as consumers and leading with, you know, seeing it as a competition for a limited right. number of congregants versus a missional church that is engaged in, in the life of the community and, and knowing people? And, and so I just, I just believe uh, personally that I, I, uh, I'm not going to speak universally. I'll just say for me, I'd rather be a part of five churches of 200 mm -hmm. and see and see that relationship develop than to be a pastor of a church of a thousand. That's just yeah. a personal value of mine. Um, I think that that has challenges. Um, oh, for sure. But um, it also has benefits, and I and I'm, I'm I'd rather face the the, the challenges of maintaining a, a smaller church for the benefits of knowing the names of everybody in my church and, and being able to to see that the the young folks pulled into that congregation. So that's I sweet. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's everyone's vision, nor, right. nor should it be coastlines. I'm just saying that that <laughs> is, yeah, that's the person I, that's, I know that's the mold that God has prepared for me and I'm learning to, to fit it in and find the values in, in those, those spaces. And if you tried to fit any other mold, restoration wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It would not, I could not, I would burn out. Yeah. Exactly. People would say, there's something wrong with <laughs> John. He does not seem equipped to this task, and they'd be right. And that goes for congregants as well, you know? It, you know, it goes, it goes for, yeah, it, you know, churches are like, their, their personalities, they're, they're like people. And yeah. so, oh, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, churches that are real restless because they feel like they're too small because they're looking at the big churches have an anxiety and a push from the pulpit of in of pressuring people to go out and bring more people in. Hmm. And and now my role in that is to to be part of this pastor's ego project of growing the church. Uh. Um, and I think church pastors that are content with this is the people God has called me to, you know, they have some level of ambition, sure. And, right. and a missional I'm not saying don't kill the mission, kill evangelism. I'm <laughs> I'm just saying um, that my my call is just to love the people that are at my church. Yeah. And to want to see more people come and, and enter into that. Uh, recognize that growth comes with uh, changes in culture that need to be addressed and, and dealt with. Um, but, a, you know, I, I want to be at a church where the pastor loves his or her people and is content with where things are and receives that from God. And 
um, doesn't bring that anxiety there. And, and so that was not true. That's not the person people had pastored them the first half of restoration. Okay. But at some, can I tell a story? Please. So I, uh, was, had this sermon that I could not wait to preach. And, um, judges. It was on the book of Judges. It was on Jephthah. And, um, <laughs> And so I would I couldn't wait. I don't remember what it was. Nobody remembers what it was. That's all, that's the the the, the I, uh, I just want a footnote. Like I'm very concerned about your memory. <laughs> well, you it's part of aging is the uh, the memory. No, I I I think the yeah, it, I don't I have no idea what I wanted to preach. I just knew it was going to change the <laughs> world. The and I was that. so excited. And um but but that I mean this thing about preaching is I just remember being excited about that and I'd gone from 25 people 2 weeks before to 32 people. And I thought, I heard some people are going to come this week. This is the week we turn a corner. Yeah. And I show up to preach the sermon and there's 18 people there. Oh no. And then four of them go up to lead us in worship. And I'm just feeling this disappointment. Yeah. I go and I'm preaching, I'm feeling the passion. And there's a, a guy who falls asleep, mm. which he did a lot. Yeah. We met at night. You're, you're going to encounter that at Coastline too. And, <laughs> but he snored and oh, snorted no. and woke himself up. Okay. And I, you know, we went to, to reflection and worship, and, and I just went outside. I was so angry, mm. and I felt tricked. Yeah. I felt like God tricked me, and these, these expectations I had had led to this disappointment, and I was crying out to God, like, why? Mm -hmm. You know, how much longer? I can't do this anymore. And, uh, just, and I remember praying, grow us bigger, mm. and I sensed very strongly God say, stop praying for growth. Pray for faithfulness. Mm. And... That was the last time I ever prayed for growth. I only oriented on praying for faithfulness to hmm. whatever God had called me to do, that I would be faithful. I was just preaching out of Acts, and there's this, there's this part where um, Peter's persecuted and beaten, mm -hmm. and he goes back to the church, and, and he instructs them to pray for courage that the gospel would go forward. And as I was preaching that, I was reminding that Peter didn't pray for a change in circumstances. Right. Peter didn't pray for an easy road. He said... The persecution's coming. We need to pray that we are ready and worthy of facing this persecution together. And I felt that shift in my prayer life mm. from, from pr uh, a praying for the externals, things that I can't control, out of a pride and insecurity into praying, God, instead of me bringing my pride and insecurity and asking you to deal with it through growth, why don't maybe I need to focus on my pride and insecurity, come to terms with that so I can pastor people safely. And hmm. ever since then, I've, I've just been living in that. That felt to me like an inflection point where wow. after that changed my prayer life, changed my orientation of the church from a kind of a, a passive aggressive bitterness because they weren't bringing their friends and they weren't showing up <laughs> week by week into just, you know, learning to take joy in, in the journey. Joy in the journey. I feel like there's been like six or seven things you said that's going to be the title of the episode. <laughs> we'll be, we'll, well, that's, that's pared down from 150. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so last question. Um, what do you wish you could tell that guy first Sunday? So that's the, that's the question that it's like, what do you wish you could tell yourself the first day of marriage? What do you, right. what do you wish you could tell yourself the first day of high school? Yeah. It's like I, I, the process is so important right. that I wouldn't want to tip – to, you know, to change anything because mm -hmm. then I'd evolve into somebody else. And so I think hmm. I would just say something like, you'll be fine. Hmm. Just, you'll be fine. Just, okay. Because uh, it, I had to learn that way. 
you know, there's, there's no other way. There's no seminary class. There's no book I could have read. There's no conference I could have attended that would make me the person I am right now. There's only right. the journey. And so something along those lines of um, the destination, don't confuse the journey with the destination. Yeah. And just know that the journey of pastoring and walking with people, that's all that life is. So just grow to know that and be okay with that and just walk the journey with joy with people. And then the church can become your life. And then... <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. feels like my story a little bit. Um, okay. I, I just want to ask, you know, you're a smart guy, and I think <laughs> people listening to this are... I, I, if you're not compelled by just the way you talk, I mean, I, I, I certainly am. What's one thing you would recommend a new congregation to read, whether it's hmm. a book in the Bible or something about growth and, you know, something that you could help people get the journey started with yeah. rather than give them the lesson. So let me, let me tell you the aim and then let me see if I can land on a resource by the, by the time I'm, I'm done talking. I, I think um, the big challenge is we face are as American Western Christians. Mm -hmm. So we think, how are we shaped mm -hmm. as American Christians? And what are the ways in which that cultural baggage comes into the church with us? Mm -hmm. And I'd say the two big things are consumerism and individualism. Yeah. So how do we as a church transcend the temptation to church, to treat church as a consumer product and which you cannot uh, you know, you think about why do people say they want to join a church and it's, you know, it's to be fed, it's because of the programs, it's, you know, all these, other, they, they're all, they, it's easy to, to talk about a church in the language of consumer, consumerism. Um, it's easy to see how churches that, uh, Hunter, do you know why the number one reason people have picked a church in the last two years? Political affiliations. That makes sense. And so those schisms that mark our country are the same schisms that mark our churches. The church is not immune. The church is not immune from that. And we've known that for a long time with the racial issue is yeah. you know, Sunday being the most segregated hour in, in American for, for years, yeah. for decades. Um, so how do we overcome that? Well, there must be a way in which we are thinking and looking at church where there are affinities that we may ascribe the gospel to, but they're not because yeah. these, these divisions wouldn't be true if we really understood and, and realized what, what the gospel is. Um, so I would say what I, what I was really, one of the things that really helped me was a book by Scott McKnight mm -hmm. called The Kingdom Gospel. Yeah. And what he does is he just looks at the sermons on Acts and asks the question, what gospel did the early church preach? Mm -hmm. Because the way when we think of what the gospel is, if that's what the gospel actually is, going to heaven when you die, um, Jesus didn't preach the gospel and the early church didn't preach the gospel. Right. And so you have a problem mm -hmm. if your gospel is rooted on some go to heaven, some go to hell, when you find no evidence of the early church ever preaching that even one single time. And <laughs> Jesus didn't talk about that either. Right. Uh, so church must be about something else. Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, in a church like Coastline that has the um, space now as a church plant to, to rewrite the script, to, to ground it in something different, um, and to examine, well, what is it that the early church preached? Look at the end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts 4 and ask the question, yeah. What did the early church look like? And what are the barriers to us, us moving that direction? Hmm. And to take, and then to wrestle with that every Sunday and every week, those questions, and to say, hey, this, you know, this magic bullet, this wand to transform our external worship services and to reflect our value. You know, this is going to be a long hmm. journey. There are going to be a lot of mistakes along the way. 
We're not going to get it right out of the gate. But we'll get a little better every week. Um, well, it'll be a little up and down every week, but month <laughs> by month, year by year, we're slowly going to move towards something new and some new vision. And to give leaders permission to, mm. to make those mistakes, to be honest, and what's working, what's not working. Uh, you know, the cement's wet, so like, speak now, or these things are going to be gentrified because churches <laughs> gentrify faster than you yeah. realize. And in those early years, is the, it's the most malleable. So just speak up now. You know, Love and that. I know I'm going to give you, on behalf of all the leaders, uh, Garrick and Sean in particular, you have permission to email them, to call them, to, to, and I would say, this is what I love about what's happening right now at Coastline. This is what ways I think we can grow better. Hmm. Um, but uh, pastors don't hear enough about what they love, so be sure to include the encouragement along the way, uh, but also challenge them. You yeah. know, let's, let's move together. This is, this is not a weekly worship service. This is, this is God's people working together to create something new, and we are all part of this. Wow, what a good ending point. John, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, this has been on. great. I really appreciate this. I come back. We'll do part two. In, I can't uh, wait. A few months. And we'll do part two on everything we didn't mention here. Someone yeah. just knocked on my door, so it seems like a good time to end. Yeah, All that's right. a good time to end. See ya. Peace.